ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Anorexia is the deadliest of all mental health disorders. Yet Victoria doesn't have enough eating disordered services to meet the demand. Good morning, my name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host this morning, Bronwyn O'Shea, joining you from ABC Wodonga. Bron, children as young as eight are being diagnosed now with eating disorders in Victoria and families with both sons and daughters who are gravely ill with anorexia say that they're being failed by inadequate treatment and support. Yes, and the situation is even worse in regional areas where there's a severe shortage of eating disorder specialists, especially in the public health system. So that makes the cost of treatment a real barrier. In fact, some people are forced to sell their homes just to get the support they need. So hospitals, families, politicians, they all describe this as a revolving door of despair, which is just awful to think about. Mm. Young people are hospitalised, they're refed, they're discharged, only to lose weight again once they return home and they end up back in hospital and then that cycle just continues. One mum described it as just watching your child die. Yeah. The Victorian Eating Disorders Strategy is due to be released as soon as next month. What needs to be in it. So have you or someone close to you been able to access help for an eating disorder? And as a parent of a child with an eating disorder, what help and assistance do you need? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Rochelle Hunt here with you in Melbourne, your co-host this morning, Bronwyn O'Shea, joining you from ABC Wodonga. And we're talking about access to help and treatment for eating disorders. There is very little funding and research that goes into this area. And as we said at the top, Bron, this is one of the deadliest of mental health issues. And despite this high mortality rate and an increasing number of hospital presentations, funding for eating disorders research, it hasn't moved in over 10 years, in a decade. No, No, and I know particularly in regional areas, families are saying, look, we went through this a decade ago or more and nothing has changed. There are still no additional services, no extra support. We haven't got anywhere in the last 10 years. Jeanette Slaney has a story to share with us this morning. Jeanette had two daughters who lived with anorexia nervosa in their teens. Thankfully, they're now both recovered. But getting help certainly wasn't easy. Hi, Jeanette. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Uh, Tell us about um, what happened when you first tried to get support for your your, um, eldest daughter. Um, I think that... We probably need to look at how eating disorders really present differently. So I actually have three daughters and when my second daughter um, prior to her eating disorder had developed obsessive compulsive disorder. So uh, that on its own and then we're we're talking 15 years ago now so it's a long time ago. um, That on its own created issues in just accessing treatment for her that was suitable for that that condition. Um, We eventually were able to have her um, assessed by the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Team and unfortunately the staff there weren't um, specialised in that area. So we then had to seek out the consultant psychiatrist who oversaw that that facility and access him in Melbourne. Now it's a bit of a long-winded story that but it's fairly important because that meant that she then later developed an eating disorder which we were fortunately in the right facility for her to be treated with. So I suppose that was a good example of of, um, early intervention, I suppose. And networking. So at the time you were living in Shepparton and I know Mm. later on you moved to the nearby town of Benalla. How 
yeah. hard was it and how, I guess, life-changing it was it for you as well as a parent to be able to access treatment when you're living in regional Victoria? It's tricky. It's tricky. And I suppose... You know, there's the logistics of it in that you need to travel to Melbourne, which is what we had to do. And I, I think by the time we were living in Benalla, unfortunately, our second daughter had been diagnosed with an eating disorder. Um, and unfortunately, the the referral pathway for my elder daughter wasn't accessible for Phoebe. So... Therefore, we had to start again, basically, and we had to go at the ground level with the GP. And unfortunately, at that time, the the GP had very little knowledge of eating disorders, let alone a treatment plan for us. So, so there begins the problem which all of us face, especially in a rural area, in accessing accessing the people who can actually help them to get well. And, and that's something that. I found very early on to be the hardest part of all because mm. you're doing it yourself. You can't actually access the treatment through a referral pathway with your GP if he doesn't have the information that can then help you, if that makes sense in some way. Jeanette, so, what you've highlighted there I think is really important, which is even within the same family with already ex- existing experience with this condition, you had vastly mm. different um, you know, journeys for both your daughters um, because, you know, one was already connected in with a psychiatrist and the other you had mm-hmm. to start from scratch. That's extraordinary. Yes. It was extraordinary. And in all fairness, I was very annoyed. <laughs> I thought, oh, this is not that it's good in any sense, but I thought, you know what? I've been down this road before. I know how this works. I, I can do this, and then it was very confronting to realise that that just wasn't the case. So we were we were right back to square one, trying to access treatment with, yeah, <laughs> um, and it's a long road, and uh, trying to find the right people for that. And as I said before, every every incident of an uh, eating disorder presents differently, and it needs to be treated and sometimes quite differently. So we began at the start again. We're about to release an eating disorder strategy. Victoria's Mm -hmm. due to release one next month. What needs to be in it, do you think, Jeanette? I mean, as a mum with lived experience of two daughters, this impacts not only the welfare of your daughters, but you, your entire extended family, your other daughter as well. What should be in this strategy? What would help? What would help? Actually, I, I've considered this quite a bit over the last few days, only because I look back to that time and think what would have been extremely helpful for me at that point in time. And I tend to go back to basics um, and think education for us would have been such a useful tool, like we need to be educating and have available resources to just that the, the first step, the first time you walk into your GP, that your GP can reassure you there's nothing worse than sitting in front of a doctor and them saying, I don't know, um, I don't know where to send you, uh, I, I really, um, I'm sorry. Uh, that is mind-blowing because in no other scenario does that occur. You walk in and your son's broken his leg and they'll say, okay, we do this, yeah. this, this. And or even recognising it. There's a oh, few people, yeah. there's a text here from a woman, so I'll read that a little later because I want to read it in full. But she yeah. was in Bendigo and she said, my GP didn't even recognise it. In actual fact, they congratulated no. me for losing weight. Oh, okay. And, That's and especially when... Hear, but- yeah, you know, one in twenty Australian adults will experience an eating disorder at some point. It's not as though this is a in- incredibly rare, unusual thing that people have not seen before, Jeanette. It, I, it's not yeah, but I still, you know, but I might have even now conversations with people that really don't understand it. So I, I think that's why I hark back to a bit of education, just for everybody, like for, so, so that people have some understanding of the severity of the illness, so that you know you don't feel so isolated. But um, that that is a really important thing that needs to change. That one of the things, you know, I probably disagree with with the statement before where you said nothing has changed. But if I look back to then, as into now. 
Um, there's a lot of organisations that are working pretty hard to get their their um, their uh, not their stories out, but just what they can offer out and and at their services. point in time, yeah, their services. Sorry, I'm running short of words, but <laughs> I can recall like I I had no one to talk to, no one knew about eating disorders. It was still it's a mental health issue, but it's more than that. It's a mental health issue and it's a, a medical condition, and so. You know, I, I know now that their eating disorders, Victoria, for example, have got an amazing facility that you can actually ring in on a hub and talk to people. Like money has to be put or directed into to helping us mm. manage what we're managing at home, often on our own. It's so important that you tell your story. And Jeanette, I know it can be quite stressful to relive it sometimes. So thank you. Mm. And, and we wish you all the best. So thanks so much thank for you. your time. It's fine. Thank you. Good on you, Jeanette, a mum of two young daughters who have now recovered, thank goodness, from anorexia nervosa. And in just a moment, we'll have a chat with Zoe Daniel, of course, Federal Independent MP for Goldstein, who is calling for almost like a one-stop shop eating disorder hub for both children and for parents as well. So whether or not that's something that people would like to see put into this new strategy. But Julie's called from Melbourne. Good morning, Julie. Oh, good morning, Jacinta. Hi. Hello. It's Rochelle, but what did you want to say? Rochelle, oh, sorry. Don't apologise, it's fine. My daughter um, is an adult now, but when she was 15, um, she started restricting. Um, I, we were in a really fortunate position where we could afford for her to see private therapists. And during the course of a year, of restricting she became more and more unwell um nobody seemed to listen and understand that we were concerned because she was just letting the therapist know whatever she thought the therapist wanted to hear in the end she was diagnosed with anorexia and admitted to the children's hospital and i look at us as being really lucky because she was young we were able to do some treatment with the hospital called fbt family-based therapy And as gruelling and horrific as it was, it meant that we as her parents could take control of her eating and basically it feels like we forced her to recover. Um, We're the lucky ones. We were in a position where I could take time off work, my husband could take time off work, we could go to and from school. Um, In the end, she changed schools. She's doing great now, but it took years of of effort and work. And Julie, when you say then we took control of her eating and Bron and I were talking about that off air and the work Mm. that goes in from the parents to to feed your child, how was that for you? It was horrific. uh, I mean, this was seven years ago and it still makes me choke up. It was, my daughter described it once uh, when she was feeling a bit better. She said, mum, it's like you're treating me for a phobia of spiders and six times a day you lock me in a closet and you cover me in spiders that's what it's like and you know it it, it's horrendous and i don't think any no one understands what that's like so i think it's and the reason why i called i think it's really important for government to listen to people with lived experience when they're making decisions about the services that they're wanting to offer because and they need professionals involved in these um, centres or whatever it's going to be who understand the disorders there's no point in getting someone in who doesn't really get what families live through and what works and what doesn't work and treatment needs to be tailored to the patient and their families it's not a one-size-fits-all and it's important that the healthcare providers really understand these illnesses because People might say that they do, but in my experience, not everybody does. And they cause more harm in the end than good. Yeah. And Julie, you're not alone. I mean, even Jeanette before, who we just spoke to, she had to quit her job in order to just travel to go backwards and forwards. And you're so right in saying that you feel like you're one of the lucky ones. Julie, thank you for sharing your story. We really appreciate it. Thank you for bringing this to light. It's really important. And and I just want to make mention, since my daughter has recovered, this fantastic organisation called Eating Disorders Families Australia Mm. has, um, has... exists now and it is full of people with lived experience who support people going through this 
And I would strongly suggest that you tap into them for their advice yeah. because they are people who've lived it and, and understand you. it. And we're going to have a chat to Eating Disorders Victoria in just a moment as well and they'll be able to talk us through some of the work that they're doing and what they hope to be in the strategy and where help is. Julie, thank you so much. Zoe Daniel has been sitting in our Parliament studio listening to this federal independent MP for Goldstein. Zoe, no doubt you would be sitting there feeling as sick as we all feel listening to this. And this is a part of the reason why you're fighting so hard at the moment for an eating disorder hub for children and for parents. How urgent do governments need to act, do you believe? Very urgently. And indeed, listening to those stories, it just sounds very familiar to me, to be honest, because they're exactly the kinds of conversations that I've been having with members of both my community and members of communities all across Victoria and Australia about what's happening uh, behind closed doors in homes where parents and often children are struggling with what is an insidious mm. physical and mental health issue. And one thing, yes, that I'm pushing very hard for is this concept of an eating disorder hub where you integrate mental and physical health treatment dietitians, nutritionists, the supports that parents need, as well as the mental health and physical health support for the patient. But other aspects of what I'm pushing for are in-home support for yeah. families. Yeah. So those kinds of pressures that parents are experiencing and indeed other siblings mm -hmm. uh, within a household when someone is suffering from an eating disorder collapse families. You have parents having to give up work. It causes them mental health issues. It often forces them to give up their job that causes financial issues that then causes family breakdown other children in the family end up with mental health issues Gosh. this is a very tentacled beast mm. and so the system would, that we have is not working so what would in-home yeah. support look like then so we've supported, uh, through my office and my team, we've supported Alfred Health to put in an application for funding where professionals would go into the home to support parents with feeding their children. Um, to give parents a break, uh, for example, <laughs> potentially they could go to work or even go for a walk, um, go to the gym, go do some shopping. Um, parents have to feed their children at least six times a day uh, when they have anorexia. Uh, the, the children often have, or the young people often have really severe mental health issues and therefore need supervision. Uh, this is incredibly gruelling for families and as Jeanette said, this goes on for years yeah. and years and, and years. And to not break down that relationship between child and parent so that then the child who is living through the eating disorder isn't blaming the parent for forcing them to eat and you can have that separation so then maybe the parent can be there for emotional support and, and have that disconnect between the two. Zoe, what about working with GPs? It's come up a lot. I will get through some of the texts a little later, but it's come up a lot that GPs just don't have the resources or the understanding or the knowledge and especially for regional areas, sometimes even if you're lucky enough to get in to see a GP, but they're your first port of call and sometimes your only port of call. Yeah, that's right. And that's something that I've been speaking with the Federal Health Minister about. And as well as the Victorian strategy, there's a national eating disorder strategy that should land between now and the end of the year. So we've talked a lot about providing education and training for GPs some GPs aren't going to want to step into this space, um, to be frank. It's very complex. But those who do, to actually support them in their, their knowledge base, their learning, their training, and also help people find them. Part of the issue is that when uh, often a young person presents with an eating disorder, they don't have anywhere to go. They go to their GP, the GP either doesn't have the expertise uh, to deal with it or doesn't know where to send them. And then that's often when they deteriorate quite quickly and end up in that revolving door of 
emergency hospital admissions, forced refeeding, and then when they're released from hospital, then they're at home with no support, so then they end up back in hospital. And that's really the vicious circle that we've been in. So Mm. supporting GPs is a big piece of this too. The Inside Out Institute for Eating Disorders sent a letter to the Parliamentary Friends of Eating Disorder Awareness a few months ago and said very clearly that there's considerable evidence-based supporting recovery through community care. So we know that, you know, putting those supports in place in community works and that's where we should focus public investment. So in terms of now getting some money to put in place some of these initiatives you've talking about, you've talked about, where are we up to there? So one of the pieces of good news in this, and I I understand that for those who are in the middle of dealing with this crisis, it's very challenging to see any light. But one good thing is that in part, since I've been pushing very hard on this, the government has now allocated $70 million to education and prevention programs. So $20 million of that has already been uh, released to various organisations um, for things like Eating Disorders Victoria's online uh, support programs and the Butterfly uh, Foundation and, and others for education. But then there's another $50 million, uh, that the government has found in the Medical Research Future Fund to look at education and prevention. So that's one piece. That's great. I'm really happy that given that the first time I spoke to the minister about this, he he kind of raised his eyebrow and said, is this really a big problem? Uh, He's definitely now at the this is a crisis um, position, Uh, but we still need to acknowledge that there are a lot of people who are already on the cliff or over the cliff and it's the treatment pathways also uh, that have to be funded. Um, But also... I guess, changed or or altered or streamlined in order to achieve the kind of integration that we're talking about between mental and physical treatment. Well, there'll be a lot of parents out there thanking you and, you know, screaming, keep fighting that fight because if change is happening, then that's wonderful. We just need to see it continue. Zoe, Daniel, thanks so much for your time. We know how busy you are, so we appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thanks for talking about this. It's really important to reduce the stigma too. So it's appreciated, I'm sure, by everyone who's listening who's been affected. Zoe Daniel, Federal Independent MP for Goldstein. This text, my daughter had terribly disordered eating throughout the pandemic. She missed 18 months of school. She didn't meet the diagnostic criteria for an eating disorder support plan. It was a full-time job for me to look after her. I had to give up my work for a while. We got her into a private hospital where she improved dramatically. While she still restricts sometimes, she is leading a pretty normal life. It's almost impossible to find an adolescent psychiatrist who must oversee the treatment and the medication if hospitalisation occurs. We need more adolescent psychiatrists and psychologists and less rigid diagnostic criteria, which excludes people from support. We are lucky we are well resourced, but others who aren't must slip through the cracks. We must never forget that these are our precious children that we're talking about and their lives hang in the balance. And that's from an anonymous mum. It's really um, tricky too. We know that early intervention has a has a big role to play in successful outcomes and there's a text here that says my daughter hasn't lost enough weight to be considered to have an eating disorder i would challenge the people who developed that criteria to spend a day at our house and see how they would manage my in inverted commas normal daughter and that's that's terrible to hear isn't it if you know something's wrong but you're you're not yet Mm. at the point where you're considered you know, able to access those services. Can't um, there's imagine. another text here that says, I think schools should have specific assistance around teaching this issue. It's oh, gosh, yeah, but wow. Do you put that responsibility back onto schools? And this is not something that you can just do once a week in a 20-minute session, you know? I don't know. It's so tricky. Rob's in Pakenham. Good morning, Rob. Uh, hello, thank you for taking my call. Thanks for calling. What did you want to share? Um, so, look, it, it warms my heart to listen to the stories today of um, the, the children that have recovered from an eating disorder. And I, I just wanted to talk to you about about my daughter, Liv. Um, I'll start with the end and perhaps work backwards, but um, she passed away in, at the end of April from anorexia. And oh, Rob. Yeah, I know. Um, it was a two... 
I'll just say two and a half year battle. Um, she was 13 uh, oh. when it, it started. Um, I can echo everything that everybody has said today. Um, you know, you, you, you live it all. Her experience started from uh, bullying at school, food shaming, body shaming, and it manifested in a way that she really wasn't able to talk about it. For, golly, probably 18 months, she knew what it was that started it, but she couldn't or wouldn't talk about it. Um, she was admitted 40 times to hospital um, that, unfortunately, by the end, it was the last dozen or so was via community treatment order, police, ambulance, physical restraints, chemical restraints, um, isolated in the hospital for long periods of time, strapped down, um, all that kind of thing. And I say that in no way of criticism of um, the people keeping her alive because she wouldn't have lived as long as she did. I guess my observations are a couple. One, there's a, a huge disconnect between the medical treatment and the mental health treatment. Um, we were essentially told that the mental health work has to happen in the community. Now, she spent 90% of over two years in hospital and it completely broke her. And so that left 10% of time to work on her mental health in the yeah. community. Mm. And so she was unable to, to make that progress. And um, look, this is an incredibly difficult uh, beast to manage. I mean, I commend everything that Zoe Daniels doing, um, brilliant. Uh, advocate for change in this space, for a space which I absolutely love. But there is also, um, but I'm a single dad that works in the fitness industry, and I was blamed by multiple professionals for her illness and death. And like I'm strong enough to to handle that, and my daughter and I knew the reality of that. But this is the reality of people not understanding. Yeah. What, what an eating disorder is, and also a couple of people have mentioned about a tailored approach. Uh, my daughter, we found out through the process that she had ASD, and something like 20% of people that have ASD also have an eating disorder. And I think if we had had all that information up front, then perhaps they would have listened to us more and treated her differently, but there is a strong desire or lack of other treatment options to put everybody through the same process and I think, look, if, if I'm here today talking to you about the death of my daughter through an eating disorder, the system has failed and we need to do better. Rob, how do we do better? How, what would have helped you and what would have helped live? Mm. A great question. I think, I think there's so many different levels. I mean, I'm... Uh, I'm becoming an advocate at, at various levels to get some change here. And um, the strategy I met with the, the director and the manager of the, the eating disorder strategy. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing um, a copy of that. But I think we need to go right back to the start you just mentioned about school. I mean, this, this disorder attacks our most vulnerable kids going through the most vulnerable of times with the particularly girls between the age of 13 to 16. I'm not saying that they're the only ones affected, obviously, but I saw that a lot in hospital. And uh, so Liv, she, she already had low self-confidence and a lot of voices inside her head with self-doubt. And, um, you know, I think that if we can have those conversations in school be part of a, the curriculum around health, around body image, around kindness, simple things. Yeah. Just be kinder to everyone yeah. for crying out loud. Yeah. Uh, you know, what it means to have healthy friendships and relationships and helping them build resilience. I would say from pre preschool to primary school to secondary school, not just as a, you know, like a, a, a once-a-year type program, but part of the curriculum. So we... Like when I, I'm about to turn 55, so when I was going out, there's no social media or anything. Being bullied, it stopped once you went home. Yeah. But now it can go on and on and on and it's a different life. And so I think that part would certainly help people. I think our, our GPs and our health professionals 
need to have an understanding. I've actually heard at the highest level of health professionals say that they believe eating disorders are a choice. And anyone that's spent five minutes with somebody that has an eating disorder or lived with it knows that that is so wrong. Yeah, Rob, absolutely. There is... Thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, It's important, it's awful, and it's gut-wrenching. And as people are saying on text, the fact that Mm. you've had to relive that, but we need to know the realities of it. So we thank you so much for sharing your story today. Yeah, thank you so much. And it's worth mentioning that there is um, a a support, a helpline called Eating Disorders Families Australia. That's the organisation. So they are particularly um, interested in supporting families through this. And that number is 1300 195 626. Another couple of helplines which could be really useful if you're listening today, Butterfly National Helpline 1800 3344 sorry, 334673, and Eating Disorders Victoria, who join us next, their helpline 1300 550 This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Rochelle Hunty with you, Melbourne, Bronwyn O'Shea joining you from ABC Wodonga. We're talking about the help and the access that individuals and families need who are living in particular with children with an eating disorder. So much love, Coming in for Rob. Rob, I just want to read you one of the texts. It says, heartbreakingly accurate and articulate, Rob and his daughter live. This is the conversation we need to have to support our young people. So thank you, Rob, for sharing and go well. And this says, how can politicians hear Rob's and Liv's story and not push this up the ladder fast? Well, someone who is wanting to get this the attention it deserves is Belinda Caldwell. Belinda's the CEO at Eating Disorders Victoria. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Belinda, there have been a a number of texts come through so far in our conversation saying, what do we really know about the root cause of eating disorders? Let's go right back to where this begins. What what do we know about that? Look, it's actually very varied. So um, we have some really strong evidence that there's strong genetic components. So we know people have vulnerabilities to an eating disorder. Um, and then the, so the, the term root cause is a bit of a challenge because we actually don't know what causes an eating disorder, but we do know that often there is sort of a perfect storm that comes into play where people have particular personality traits or, and then there may be circumstances that may trigger um, uh, the eating disorder. It's sort of a perfect storm arrangement, really. Well, and actually we've got lots of different eating disorders as well, so... And I think one of the stronger things that's come through today is just how individual it is for that person and how that help and support needs to be tailored and how it's hard to get even in in the best of times. Belinda, you've just attended an eating disorders forum in Aubrey-Wodonga just last week. We know that the Victorian strategy on eating disorders is due to be released at the end of the month. Are you positive? Like, are you feeling good about the changes that are potentially going to be made and the changes that we're seeing in the community at the moment? Yes, I am. I am. And, you know, I I say that I hear Rob's story. I've actually personally met with Rob. Um, I, you know, we know that the terrible situations that we have within our community um, and the importance of this work... um, and particularly over the last few years with COVID, COVID, you know, we've already experienced increasing rates in eating disorders and the whole COVID thing um, across the world really uh, caused a bit of an explosion in eating disorders. But kind of one of the benefits, if there is a silver lining to that uh, horrible scenario, is that it really has um, ratcheted up the concern from government around eating disorders and it has led to a range of more services being funded over the last little while, but also greater investment, um, as Zoe was talking about, at a federal level, and then the two strategies, which are due to come out very, very shortly. So um, it's feeling like we're making progress <laughs> in a very difficult area. One of the challenges that seems to come up is that um, even if you can access um, somebody with with specialist knowledge and start to get treatment, often 
um, it's through private practice and that comes at considerable mm. expense. Yeah. Has that been raised with you and, and what's being done to make yeah. sure that we see more available through the public health system? Look, I think that's something we've been advocating for and we're very hopeful that the Victorian eating disorder strategy we'll be addressing, which essentially says eating disorder is a core business for all mental health services. They're not something that should be sitting outside of your our general mental health system. Um, so you should be able to turn up to a headspace, a local and area mental health service, a child and youth mental health service and get a good response to an eating disorder. Um, so I think that if we... Uh, I think we would hopefully be seeing that to be the biggest change that we're looking for mm. in our current system. Um, because you're right, there's, you know, we do have the MBS item numbers, but most people are out of pocket. So, you know, people can access 40 visits through the Medicare uh, system, but most people will still be out of pocket um, for those visits. Even if you could afford it, and we've had some callers today say, look, I'm lucky enough that I could take time off work and I could afford this. The waiting lists to see paediatricians, to see specialists can be over 12 months. These families don't have 12 months sometimes, Belinda. No, and, you know, that's, that's not the case across the state. I'm not saying it isn't the case in some parts. I think one of the challenges we've got is a bit of this patchy, um, patchy response, but you know, a significant number of our child and youth mental health services um, prioritise eating disorders and you will get into those eating disorder services fairly promptly because they recognise that the risk of the waiting list for that. Um, so for young people, if there are anybody out there, um, really um, go through mental health triage and try and get into your local child and youth mental health service as your first step um, with an eating disorder. Um, so we don't typically see... 12-month waiting list across the board. What we're seeing, though, is that we don't have enough investment at the pointy end, so um, the, the more skilled end, and therefore the pressure of the cases get pushed down into those more generalist services like Headspace and community health services and things like that. So that's one of the... Uh, we do definitely need a lot more investment in skilled people within our upper-tier mental health services. One of the challenges, and, and living regionally, this is something I really am concerned about, is that for a lot of regional families, ultimately the, the um, treatment and care ends up coming from Melbourne. So you have to yeah. travel. And that takes yeah. that, that person outside of their community, away from their network of, of family and friends to support them. Is yeah. that a problem or are there cases where that's actually going to get the best results? Would we be better off bringing that care to regional areas or are there going to be times where it's actually better to have that centralised in Melbourne? Look, I think one of the challenges with the more intense levels of support, so if you're talking things like day programs, residential, that more intense level of support, um, you have to have enough people in an area to... Um, to attend it, you know, at any one time. So it can be tricky. So some of those more intense levels of support for that pointier and the smaller number of people uh, will have to, in many ways, be metropolitan-based just to have the numbers. Um, I think what we see, though, is that is not where we want the attention for our services. We want the attention back in the community. We want more support for people in the home. Totally concur with yeah. Zoe Daniels' ideas. We want people getting identified way earlier in the journey. That's one of the challenges in rural settings is the time it takes to get a diagnosis in the first place. If we can get diagnoses quicker, we get people acting quicker, we get families skilled and educated really um, much more quickly yeah. to sort of take a strong role early. We can we don't need that pointy end. No, and um, even looking at the diagnosis itself, I mean, we've had so many people today saying technically, you know, my child wasn't actually given a diagnosis. Belinda, thank you so much for the yeah. work that you do for you to you and your entire team. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Belinda Coldwell, the CEO of Eating Disorders Victoria. Their helpline is 1300 236. So Eating Disorders Victoria, their helpline is 1300 236. Bron, this text, because often when we're talking about eating disorders with children in particular, there's an assumption that it's young girls. This is affecting more and more young boys. So we know that this is not gendered. 
This message says, I'm a mother of a boy with anorexia. My experience has been that there is a huge disconnect between the medical care and the mental health support. We're currently engaged with the mental health support, but it feels like it's just been through good luck rather than good management. The system doesn't seem to cope well with split families, which I believe is common amongst families who are dealing with this. My family were experiencing coercive control prior to this and there were what's it? There were way more services that exasperated this. Eating disorders are super complex and families are so vulnerable. And there's a text here from a psychologist in Wodonga that says eating disorders are core business for public mental health services. Unfortunately, I agree that often only severe cases of anorexia nervosa get services because of a lack of resources. Anorexia diagnosis only make up a very small percentage of people with an eating disorder. It's almost impossible for these people to access public services. Jo's been waiting patiently in Melbourne. Jo, thanks for calling. Yeah, no problem. Um, I'm just ringing because basically my daughter has been on this journey now for two years and I have been lucky enough um, to have taken time off work to support her. Um, What I realised was that at the beginning, um, (laughs) the GPs, a, a lot of them, they have no knowledge of how to detect an eating disorder. Um, the GP that we saw um, told me my daughter was hearing voices and to contact a psychologist when really what she should have said was, you need to start making sure your da- daughter eats every meal. Um, and because of that, unfortunately, she declined quickly, ended up in hospital and then came out and again, we were unable to feed her, um, which should just be the most easiest thing in the world to do. But um, when a person is that afraid, um, they're in fight and flight and they will go to (laughs) so many extremes to not eat. Um, I then found that there was one Uh, day program in the whole of Victoria for under 16. So there's absolutely nothing out there to support us for under 16. Now, they take um, 12 patients every 12 weeks or 10 weeks. So it's, it's difficult to get in and you need to want to recover, which is actually... Um, a lot of people suffering from an eating disorder have anosinoxia, which means they don't want to recover. Yeah, of course. So did so, you get the help that yeah. you needed, Jo? Did you- um, look, she, she did do the whole program. However, once again, um, this is the problem with the field is that they, they don't individualise um, programs and they were continuing yeah. to open way her and I would say to them, please don't open way her. It's triggering her. And so what would happen is she would stop eating the next day. Um, and they just said, this is part of our program. So they don't listen to the parents. Although we're not professionals, we do know our children. How's and, your daughter now, Jo? Um She's getting there. It's still very difficult. I'm still having to support her daily. Um, we have about three to sometimes five appointments a week. Um, she wants to get better, but um, oh, you see, the problem is is with anorexia, it's, it's genetic. And so when they go into energy deficit, it switches on the, the, the genes for anorexia. So they are literally fighting their brains which oh, is sending gosh. out faulty oh, messages. Stress. I yeah, I have actually seen my daughter crying with such fear, but she wants to eat, so I actually have to hand feed her. And it's incredible to see the resilience that these sufferers have. They push through and, um, uh, you know, I don't know how they do it because they are literally tormented by their mind they're tormented by the medical system and until more research uh comes about yeah. in 
discovering what are the you know what 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 is actually causing this, then the best hope we have is refeeding our children, which leads me to there is an opportunity. Um, the Albert Road Clinic actually has a clinic that could be up and running and they have been asking for $500,000 from the government. Gosh, it's not much, is up it? Up and running. It's nothing. Oh, and this, and this, they're that... not getting it because they're private, but this clinic could do bursaries like one Dinerita and it would give us respite and it would give the sufferers a chance to be refed, which then means if they are yeah. weight restored, they have a better chance of recovering. Oh, Joe, thank you. It's the idea of having to hand feed to force feed your child, Bron, that I I almost can't say it. Like, it's so distressing. And I really loved the fact that Joe talked oh. about, with such empathy, about the, the, the strength that she mm. saw in her daughter. I mean, I mm. also think, imagine having that fight within yourself um, where you know you need to eat but but your your brain's telling you, you you mustn't so i i think you know empathy and understanding and and knowledge is going to go so far in helping us get somewhere with this um grampians health opened a new multidisciplinary eating disorder clinic in ballarat just in march this year and their aim was to really provide this holistic wraparound treatment to reduce wait times and to reduce the time that patients do spend in hospital. Stacey English can tell us more. She's a paediatric eating disorder nurse consultant working with Grampians Health. Hi, Stacey. Hi, Rochelle, and hi, Bronwyn. Thank you so much for having me today. So what was it that brought you to the point where you knew this was going to be a good solution for the community there? Oh, look, as so you've heard from so many people about the need for these services to be based in a regional and rural area uh, for specialist treatment and, you know, access to that specialised eating disorder treatment is challenging wherever you live. You know, we've heard from people in metropolitan areas as well, um, but it's substantially harder for those living in regional and rural areas. Um, and the I think the local community really rallied together and uh, local families were heard by our local member of parliament and the Grampians Health Organisation and recognised that need wow. in the community. Oh, yeah. how great. What, do you hope that this is then an example for other councils, for other areas, for other communities, that it can be done, that these services can be here so that you don't have that travel time, that you have that community hub, that you have people that will have the time to understand and, and treat you like the individual that you are? Absolutely. And, you know, we, we did receive some funding from the Department of Health and that's enabled us to be able to build a model that's so needed. Yeah. When we spoke to Rob, the parent who, who so courageously shared his story with us of losing his daughter Liv, he talked about that disconnect, Stacey, between the physical care and the mental mm. health support and mm. that within hospital it was sort of said, no, mental health support something that happens in community, but she spent so much time in hospital, there was never oh. that opportunity. How are you bringing, bringing that in, under one roof? How, how are you bringing those different aspects and elements of support and recovery together? Yeah, so we're working really closely with the community mental health teams and we're providing a collaborative multidisciplinary clinic. So that means you've got the medical doctor, uh, the dietitian and the mental health clinician all in the one place and all on the same page working together with the patient and family. And that's at no cost because, you know, we were hearing from families that were going to different services for treatment, whether that be, you know, medical in one one area and that might be private and then they might be seeing a mental health clinician publicly and you know that can be challenging when they're, they're having to travel to different areas and they're out of pocket so yeah we really see the need for it to be that wraparound care mm. all in the one place and ensuring that everyone's on the same page how do we support the parents and the other family members i mean this has been nothing short of gut-wrenching like just so mm. distressing to think about what entire families and individuals are going through for years on end 
Mm. And to people like Rob, who is now, seems like an incredible advocate almost for other families who are going through similar things, do we have the support for the parents that are forced to feed their children, that may lose their children, uh, whose children may die as, as a result of an eating disorder? Is the support there f- for the parents? Yeah, look, I think at the moment there's some really wonderful organisations in the community and you've heard from Belinda from Eating Disorders Victoria and there's Eating Disorders Families Australia. Um, But a big part of the work we're doing is working with the Department of Health and EDV and the Centre of Excellence of Eating Disorders to ensure that our service model is aligned with the Victorian Eating Disorders Strategy and the Royal Commission recommendations for mental health care. And that's to be you know, to really value the lived experience workforce and for them to be alongside us in the treating team and working with us in supporting patients and families. So we're consulting with lived experience workers in our design of service model and they'll be a part of our team. So they'll be able to offer support to the young person and the family. Wow. Well, congratulations. Uh, and let's hope that more and more clinics like yours open up. Stacey English, Paediatric Eating Disorder Nurse Consultant with Grampians Health. Thank you so much. Kylie, apologies for keeping you so long. You're calling us from Geelong. Kylie, welcome. What did you want to say? Oh, thank you. I just wanted to give a big shout out to our GP, to the Geelong Clinic, to Headspace Geelong, to the team at Eating Disorder Victoria and to um, the Butterfly Foundation because without their help, um, yeah, I just, our daughter's in recovery um, after, you know, fairly all that stuff, FBT, everything that everyone's talked about, I could relate and connect to. Um, but thankfully, um, you know, she's in a much better space oh, because I wrapped that around helps. at multidisciplinary support and now I do a lot of work with... Um, tandem as a lived experience carer so I've worked on the Victorian um, eating disorders strategy and I will continue to fight (laughs) for better care for our people in Victoria and around Australia to get treatment for this hideous illness. And the strength Kylie that you and Rob Mm. and to all of the parents that have called us today that you have thank you you know you often get forgotten in these conversations so Kylie thank you and there's a text here, Rochelle, that says, hang in there, parents. You are good and loving and probably feeling beaten, but don't lose your hope. The odds are on your side that you and your child will beat this scourge. And once you're in the system, it can help. It goes on to say, my daughter is now well and living quite normally after time in Albert Road. This chat brings back traumatic memories, but it seems to be a chapter of life we have closed. Look after yourselves and give your mm. kids as many hugs as they will allow. Just those numbers again. So Butterflies National Helpline is one eight hundred double three four six seven three, and Eating Disorders Victoria is one three hundred double five zero two three six. I don't think we can thank all of the parents who called and shared their stories today enough, Bron. Because mm. if it's not understood, the only way we're going to understand the reality of this is through talking about it as uncomfortable and as awful as it is it needs to be spoken about and stigma and misinformation does so much harm and Mm. so i think the more we can hear those real life stories from people who you know uh, have really dug deep to share them um that that's a really great way to move forward so thank you